This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. One of the youngest uh, Shusod teachers um, in our lineage at this time. I think uh, I think you beat out Koji by like, what, a year or something? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. So um, Brian practiced at Tassajara for many years and... Um, and then moved up to Green Gulch Farm to practice with his teacher, Tension Reb Anderson, which he did for a number of years before um, going off and doing other things down in Southern California and returning to Green Gulch. And he now is works in the, I think he's in the treasury. Is that correct? Or are you in personnel? Uh, both. Ah, yes. Both. <laughs> I started out doing personnel, which I had a job Tim Crowley used to do, and then I absorbed the accounts payable for fun. So thank you very much, Brian, for coming. And uh, we're really sorry that uh, we wouldn't be able to sit with you all weekend as our original intention was to have Brian lead a three-day study, Sashin, on the festival that he'll be uh, uh, talking about today in his Dharma talk. Um, but thank you very much, Brian, for agreeing to uh, come zoom out to us and uh, be with us this morning. Okay, thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, yeah, I guess. Welcome to your life in this new day and age. I've not given a virtual talk before, so... Um, see how this goes I Mako sent me a quote I didn't really know what to talk about I guess I could talk about the jewel mirror samadhi which is what I was gonna spend an entire weekend discussing um I didn't yeah I didn't really know what to talk about and then Mako actually sent me a quote from Katagiri Roshi to help me out a little bit for those of you who don't know Katagiri Roshi was um very briefly one of the abbots of San Francisco Zen Center but he also was one of the Japanese monks who came from Japan to help Suzuki Roshi start San Francisco Zen Center. And this quote, I don't know if Mako has shared this quote before, I don't want to bore you, but it's a a really beautiful quote. And I thought, okay, anyway, um, I will read it. I think most people have doubts about the practice of Zazen. Compared with other practices, you workshops and seminars just sitting uh, is too simple to touch our hearts it seems too difficult as well for this reason most people ignore this simple practice of just sitting and take up other things more fascinating we go for the mysterious experiences of the spiritual life in order to satisfy our individual desires but this never hits the mark for example even though you feel good in your sauce in one moment in the very next moment, it is gone. Feeling good is very unstable. We always forget about change. This is why most people are restless. And this is why so many of us try to find something to help us settle down. Unfortunately, the more we try to settle ourselves, the more we feel unstable. We have to live in a way that is beyond all human speculation. Is there anything we can depend on? Something we can do to benefit ourselves psychologically, spiritually, or philosophically? Can't we find relief through some teaching or some person? No, there is nothing. But there is one thing we can do. We can learn to live right now, right here, right in the midst of the circle of life and death, which Buddhists call samsara. This is all we can do. There is nothing else. This is life. This is death. Life and death are not two. And uh, Mako was right. I was very inspired by that quote um, because I consider myself to have the opposite of bedside manner. And I feel like maybe in this time, um, that's, I don't know if that's very helpful. I don't know if that's what people want. And when Mako said the Katagiri Roshi quote, I was reminded of a story I heard from a teacher who um, used to live at Kringle's farm. And he passed away about five years ago. His name is one of the most uh, important teachers in my life. And he told a story about Katagiri Roshi. There was a big fundraiser at Kringle's
Ringgold's farm. And Katagiri Reshi was the keynote speaker. And he got up there and he just said, everyone in this room, every one of you is going to die. And everybody was like, no, no, no. We're trying to get money out of these people, you know? Um, and I just felt, I feel so much affinity toward those people uh, like Katagiri Roshi who um, don't see much other reality than the reality of what we're always living, which is vulnerability to death, vulnerability to losing our loved ones, vulnerability to getting sick. And uh, I sometimes have a hard time knowing what people, uh, what I can offer. Um, and I, I wrote down some quotes from Ajahn Chah too. I, I guess so. Anyway, what Katagiri Roshi is saying is, yeah, our practice is just sitting and so the first line of the Jewel Mir Samadhi too is the teaching of thusness. So it's really, I think Jewel Mir Samadhi is one of the most pure expressions of the Zen path, which is living the Bodhisattva vow. And my new way of thinking of the Bodhisattva vow is, so you might've heard of this traditional way of viewing the Bodhisattva vow, which is, oh, I'm not gonna leave this existence in favor of some greater spiritual bliss realm like or even something that feels like non-existence like nirvana I'm going to stay here and help people and so I'm trying to flip that coin and say well if I'm yeah if my vow is not to leave my vow is to stay to stay and be here and so to me the bodhisattva vow is to actually choose to be yourself and that's how I'm viewing it now and I think the final line of the Jewel Mir Samadhi to cut to the chase um, the final line is Deng Shan who wrote the Jewel Mir Samadhi it's his expression of enlightenment in this life um, he calls it the host within the host which is a way of saying the most realized life and he says practice secretly working within like a fool like an idiot and my teacher reb anderson has said yeah um choosing to be yourself is pretty stupid actually many of you know not many people do it everyone <laughs> usually thinks the smart move is to try and be better to try and be smarter to try and be more impressive to try and do this or that and uh to try and get out of the life they're living in some way and dunshan is turning that on its head and he's saying um the reality of perfection the reality of spiritual enlightenment is beyond our understanding and to live a life where it's beyond our understanding is the most realized life but it's also can look very foolish to the rational mind and to me that's the meaning of of his poem the Jewel Mir Samadhi he says the first line is the teaching of thusness has been intimately communicated by Buddhas and ancestors. And thusness, to me, is a word um, that doesn't really mean anything. I think it's important that it doesn't. I think the Sanskrit word is like tatata, which is, um, some people have said it's just like a baby sort of making syllables. Uh, and he even says later in the poem, right, there's this line that, I've often been embarrassed to chant in the Zendo. Ah, bah, wah, wah, is there anything said or not? Um, and he, he explicitly gets at that, that there's all we're doing. So it's hard to give a Dharma talk. I don't know how he even wrote the poem. It's hard to give a Dharma talk when um, you're aware that words are just the nonsense syllables of an infant, uh, no matter how... Uh, sort of impressive I can think I am in my head. Um, but the teaching of thusness is the teaching in, so I have two things to say about that. One is this teaching that thusness is an expression of us 
present moment. So the present moment is an experience of you not actually knowing what's going on. Uh, I've been reading this new collection of Dharma Talks by Ajahn Shah, and he says over and over again, when you understand, it's funny because it's exactly what Dogen was saying, even though Ajahn Shah is in a completely different tradition. But Ajahn Shah says, um, when you realize what's untrue, you are experiencing truth. When you realize how your life is untrue, or the way in which your life is untrue, you are finally experiencing truth. And Dogen said that famously when he said, enlightenment for us is realizing our delusion. Um, and so the teaching of thusness is, is the experience of not understanding what's happening. And it's also the reality of the present moment. So I think um, what Deng Shan is saying is that our life is to not know what's really going on and also to have faith in what's really going on through our life. And another way of, of translating that, actually this, the teaching. Um, so I've been looking at all the characters here, let me, hold on, sorry. It's fine, I'm happy. I want everyone to type in your questions too. I actually get a lot of feedback that um, I just kind of go and and there are things that people want me to unpack. So please feel free to um, type in whatever you want. I think that's like great. So I was asked the name of the Ajahn Shah book. It's Still Flowing Water. And it was translated by Tanisaro Biku, who I think is a, one of the foremost translators of the Thai forest tradition in, into English. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, my friend just sent it to me. Um, and so the teaching of thusness, I've been looking at in preparing, I was going to prepare, you know, to give this uh, retreat where we were going to go line by line through the poem. And so I decided to look at every single character in the poem and see what every character means. Because the beautiful thing about Chinese characters is that they all seem to have 10 different meanings. And so teaching is actually a, another way of saying that character is religion. And thusness, while I understand it's a translation of this very important Sanskrit word, um, it also means the present moment. And so I thought I really like the way of saying that first line is the religion of the present moment has been taught by Buddhists and ancestors or the religion of the present moment has been offered by the wise people of the past. And that's really hard to do. I think that's what that Katagiri Roshi quote is speaking to. It's really hard to just have faith in the present moment and just sit with it. And as I've said many times, and and these paradoxes keep coming up in the teachings, like Ajahn Shah saying, only the untrue is true, or Dogen saying delusion is enlightenment. My way of saying it is um, the only way to accept yourself is to accept yourself as someone who can't accept themselves. The only way to get into the present moment as a deluded sentient being is to be with the part that needs to leave the present moment. And I think Deng Shan's poem really points to the inescapability of present moment so it's hard yeah for me it's hard to even encourage anything because to me i'm it's wide open I, everything is flowing uh with reality and actually so i had that i highlighted that line in the sort of advertisement for the retreat too Deng Shan says even though the basis is reached and the approach comprehended true eternity still flows which to me says even when you understand the tradition, even when you have great spiritual uh, bliss or uh, experience of insight, even that experience is just an experience happening to you. And if it's an experience happening to you, it is in some sense 
not the perf- perfection of wisdom that's flowing underneath all of it, that's been flowing underneath it the entire time. Even when you thought you didn't get it, when you thought you did get it, there's this perfection of the of reality that's just flowing the entire time. Uh, he also says in the poem, right, even ye, ye had great archer's skill, but when arrow points meet head on, what has this to do with the power of skill? It's, so thinking you understand what's going on, thinking you don't understand what's going on, all of that is happening just the way everything happens. And in enlightenment and practice, I think there's something to be said for improving yourself. There's something to be said for having practice. Uh, but to me, my practice is to just open up to the mystery of how I come to be me. And it's funny, I, I think of that as very Zen because that's my the tradition I've been studying, but Ajahn Chah is always saying the same thing and the Buddha said the same thing, all you are is a body and mind. And a body and mind is not a person. A body and mind is just phenomena that come together in such a way that they think they're me. And this feeling of being me is just a byproduct of phenomena coming together. And so the practice is to, I think, just hold that really lightly and even get in touch with just the mystery of of what it is. And Dukshan says over and over again, you know, can't be spoken, can't be understood. So to me, the practice is to just sit and experience it and open up to the ways in which in which everything is just a, a human experience and human experience is not ultimate reality but it's the way in which we what's protective sustain ultimate reality excuse me <laughs> my computer wanted to restart because uh, I had been thinking about this too um just with vulnerability and with the way the world is right now. Uh, like every time I touch my s- stupid face, uh, I just think that's an emotional experience now. And I was thinking about that and then I had this thought, you know, why do I get sick? Why, why do I have to be that way? Why do I have to be vulnerable to getting sick? And then I thought it, about it from the virus's perspective that actually all I am is like a buffet with a couple openings, you know? And um, in that sense, right, I, I'm a virus on the supermarket. <laughs> uh, I, and of course, and I think Buddhism, it's like this, um, like that teaching in the Jewel Mir Samadhi. Uh, when arrow points meet head on, what has this to do with the power of skill? Every moment is all phenomena happening together uh, in such a way that it thinks it's you experiencing a world. And of course, the Buddha's, the Buddha uh, was talked like this all the time. Uh, when this happens, this other thing happens. That's all, that's all our lives are, is one thing giving rise to another. So there's no way you could even be alive um, without something else being born to feast on yourselves, basically, essentially. And the same way we are alive to eat other organisms. And this reality, I think the Jewel Mir Samadhi is a poem of just having faith in how that comes to be even if we can't understand how it comes to be. Um, So I want to, yeah, I'm going to share another quote from Ajahn Shah. He's very up for me right now. And so it's about sitting meditation. I thought it was very helpful 
because it can seem like, oh, there's nothing to do. And even kind of Gary Rose said, there's nothing to do. I should probably be more hard-line Soto Zen and actually honor my tradition and say there's nothing to do, there's nothing to gain. Just go sit. Um, uh, okay, here's Ajahn There are many types of meditation, and they can be done in all four postures. Not only while you are sitting, you can do them while standing, sitting, walking, or lying down. All that's asked is that your mindfulness be always focused on knowing at this moment, what are the characteristics of the mind? What mood is it in? Happy? Pained? Stirred up? At peace? Observe it in this way. In other words, know what's a right and wrong in your mind. Oh, sorry. In other words, know what's right and wrong in your mind at all times. This is called making the mind quiet, which I think is yeah very beautiful and, again, totally in line with everything I understand about the Soto Zen tradition as well, which is nothing is to be rejected from the mind. You, know, you can know what's right and wrong in your mind. Um, but none of it is, is rejected in favor of some ideal or idealized version of, oh, this is meditation practice, or this is how I should be feeling. This is how I should be reacting to the present moment. It's actually, I really appreciated that, that you can be pained, you can be stirred up, or you can be happy, or you can be at peace. And all of it is just arrow points meeting head on, uh, which is, again, uh, an accident. It's the way Dukshan talks about it. It has nothing to do with skill. Um, and, oh, wait, so I'm getting some, some chats. Um, so the five ranks, yeah, the fifth rank is the host within the host. The five ranks, I do not have a straightforward description of them. <laughs> I remember when the t- uh, practice period Mako and I did with Paul Haller when he taught the five ranks, he, he taught all four. And like classes and Dharma talks, there are like dozens of classes and Dharma talks during these practice periods. He did the first rank, he did the second rank. And at the end, the last session, he was doing the fourth rank and he kept going on on the fourth rank and it was sort of becoming clear like he's not going to talk this is just the fourth rank isn't it and then somebody actually raised their hand and said um, are you going to get to the fifth rank and Paul goes we don't talk about the fifth rank <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah guest and host I actually to me so yeah I, I, I don't really want to speak out of turn but it's it's our lived reality and a sense of absolute reality. And so to me, I really want to get into the five ranks actually, um, because I've been studying mind only Buddhism. And to me, everything is just a human experience. And even these words, even the great teachings, even great spiritual insight is, is everything is ultimately reality being consolidated into a human experience and so i really wonder because it seems to me like the five ranks are sort of relative reality and then a glimpse of ultimate reality and the way those interact but i feel like the mind only tradition and even dungshan understands that ultimate reality is in us because we're participating in reality uh we can never view it from outside. And so I, this sort of teaching of the way relative and ultimate interact is, is difficult for me. And in fact, why, why I love at the end, when Dungshan talks about the fifth rank, he says, uh, it's the host within the host is practicing in such a way that you don't even know what you're doing. You don't, and, in, and what, my teacher, Rev Anderson, has said is that it actually feels foolish. It actually feels stupid in a way to 
your traditional way of thinking. And to me, so compassion as well. Um, compassion to Dingshan. Uh, the funny thing is, I think it's writing that poem, right? Uh, he knew, so he said, just to depict it in literary form is to stain it with defilement. That's another line of the poem. And But he wrote the poem, <laughs> you know? And to me, I feel that way. Like, like I said, I, I experienced this quiet mind that Ajahn Chah is talking about, I can experience that in meditation. And then it's so hard for me to actually want to give a Dharma talk. My, it's literally a practice for me to just say yes to every teaching opportunity that's offered to me because my instinct is to say no. And to say no, I can't be spoken. I'd rather just uh, sit quietly. Um, so I think compassion for Dungshan is is writing that poem is helping people have a sense of a greater reality, which may not be the best news that the greater reality is beyond our understanding, but there is a where faith in that reality actually can, can confirm it in your, in your life. And I think Sorry to bring up Ajahn Chah again, too, but I also think it's great compassion to allow pain into your mind when it enters, to allow stress into your mind when it enters, to allow, what is it, to be stirred up uh, if the moment is causing that to happen. That's great compassion for yourself because the mind is already welcomed. That's my, the way I've always looked at it is the mind is already welcomed it. So to push it out is kind of uh, against the program that your, your mind itself is giving rise to. And I think that's the tradition of Yogacara, too, in my understanding, is that everything that comes into the mind is actually, so just to get way out there, the mind, the, what they call the unconscious, we call the unconscious in Yogacara is actually nirvana. And it's nirvana working itself out in a way in consciousness. And so every so the way Ajahn Shah is saying to this welcoming pain, welcoming being stirred up, it's that when he says that is the quiet mind, I think it's that, even though he's in a completely different tradition, it's that similar understanding that what I call the perfection of reality or what Dengshan calls true, true eternity flowing. That's always happening. And our conscious experience is just a way that it's working itself out. And so it's already welcomed into the present moment when it arises. And so not pushing it away is compassion. Welcoming it is compassion. And that's compassion for yourself that obviously will translate to to others because they are experiencing yeah so if you start to not personalize your feelings and understand that it's a greater reality just happening from this perspective too it's not even my reality it's just a perspective that arises see everyone else's reality as just a perspective that's arising and you can have what Dogen called deep faith in cause and effect which I think of as you know so yeah in, in our scientific understanding right we think of reality as atoms and and so if you could really if you truly understood the entire atomic structure of the ocean the tsunami would not be a surprise. The tsunami would be exactly what had to happen given every causal step that led to the present moment. And I like, I think it's a compassionate act to see every human as just causes that led them to their present moment. And I think even when Mako was head of the kitchen at Tassahara, I was made the manager of the crew when I was a mere 25 years old and had only been practicing a few years, um, everyone on the crew was maybe twice my age, sometimes three times my age. It was very, it's a, and it's a very demanding job. 
and I was about to just break down completely. And I remember telling Maka that the only way I'm going to get through this is to understand that everyone is entitled to whatever reaction they have to the present moment. And that actually sustained me uh, the entire summer. And to this day, it is, to me, a compassionate life. To understand, now again, they're entitled to their reaction. Maybe they're not, they're not allowed to just do whatever they want. But to understand that I am entitled and reality is, you know, offering my reaction to the present moment and everyone else's reaction to the present moment is happening based on, you know, a causal connection that we can't fully understand, but we can have faith in. And to me, that is compassion. And I know now I'm 36 minutes. I probably should have, should stop um i and the precepts i yeah i would love to get into the precepts we've actually been we have a group of under 40 people called younger vincent um and we've actually been doing the precepts uh we have eight or different eight or nine different speakers but the leader of the group she decided to just do uh, taking refuge and the pure precepts, which is, I can't ever remember them, but it's, it's do good, avoid evil, and uh, purify the mind is the original version. But uh, I think in the Mahayana, it's embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies, embrace and sustain all good, and live for the benefit of all beings. And, and the 10 precepts of not killing, not stealing, not misusing sexuality, not lying, not intoxicating body or mind, not slandering. Um, and so I've been studying them a lot, actually. And I went back to Reb Anderson's book. And actually, Reb Anderson's book, Being Upright, is quite good. I had not looked at it in, in almost 17 years. I read it right when I first got to Creek Um And he talks about interdependence a lot, which I never... Um, I'm not really into interdependence. It seems like too understandable. I feel like, right, Jokeshan really wants us to like remember that we can't understand anything. Um, interdependence seems too graspable. But lo and behold, I opened up Red's book and he's got these amazing quotes on, on interdependence. Um, so, always my face, Red. Um, uh, and so let's see, uh, let me get it. And, and I did talk, so I actually gave the first talk on taking refuge. And um, so I read this quote from Red Anderson. If you don't trust interdependence, oh, good. And somebody asked um, about faith too, and this is very similar. Uh, it's so if you don't trust interdependence, this is Red Anderson now. If you don't trust interdependence, then you normally try to get out of the world of delusion. You try to fix the situation by your own personal efforts. But trying to get out of the world where you suffer because you believe yourself to be independent only reinforces the same world. Those who understand interdependence are happy to live in the midst of whatever life brings without trying to fix it by their own power. They understand that any sense of independence is simply an illusion. But that sense persists, given our human perceptual equipment. Understanding interdependence, you do not try to distance yourself from any manifestation of life. No matter how painful it is, no matter how deluded, you do not feel separate from it, and therefore you don't try to get away from it. You also don't run after it. You just deal with whatever comes up without trying to manipulate, negotiate, or finesse the situation. Being upright in the midst of whatever is happening is the way to understand Buddha's teaching of dependent co-arising. In being upright, you let your selfishness just be selfishness and your suffering be suffering. You don't try to change yourself or others. You don't try to improve yourself or others. You don't turn away from or lean into your suffering. You don't even prefer happiness over suffering. 
then you discover that not meddling with the world of suffering is freedom from the world of suffering. And yeah, so not having read that for 17 years and then um, thinking I had some understanding of Zen and then reading and it's like, oh no, I was just, I'm just a distant echo of Reb's understanding. It's good to remember. Um, What he's saying there is very similar to everything I've come to believe as well, probably from his influence. Um, Is that having faith in the world Having you have to have faith in interdependence because it's never going to look like interdependence. Our role within interdependence is to think we're independent and separate. It's always going to look like there's me and there's not me. That's just how existence works. Um, and so that's to me a very important move uh, that the Zen masters have made is to understand that and to, to turn into the skid, as I've been saying. It's that I'm never going to see a world that doesn't look like me or not me, but I can experience me in such a way that the reality beyond me and not me is confirmed. The interdependence is confirmed. And uh, that has been a very important teaching in my life. And free will. Oh, shoot. I have always had terrible answers to the free will question. And then I actually, I felt like I got it. And then, no, it's gone now. Um, Yeah, it's, again, I think it's just, I should have written it down. Um, My understanding is just what I've been saying and what I said a minute ago, that it's always going to look like you have free will. And I remember Kokio Henkel, who some of you may know. Yeah, I know he's taught at Austin. I think he taught recently too. Um, He he, he actually, with our our current central abbot, Ed Satizan, I remember years ago them going back and forth about this um, and Kokio kept saying well there's the appearance of free will I think I think Kokio is not a believer <laughs> uh, in the same way I'm not either but there will always be the appearance of free will and so what I've come to understand or what I've come to believe about the Bodhisattva vow is this choosing to be yourself choosing to be totally diluted i think suzuki roshi said that once too if because a lot of people were like well i don't want to be fooled and suzuki roshi said be totally fooled allow yourself to be fooled and i think that's what dukshan is saying to practice like an idiot um, practice in this world on its own terms knowing that it's not ultimate reality but that it's our reality um, if i ever remember my good answer to that question, Mako, I'll share it with you. Um, see. Yeah, uh, thusness, I think so. Uh, what Richard has asked, I think is accurate. Um, thusness is the present moment. And it's not just beyond our preferences and understanding, it's even beyond our experience. That's that's the scary part. I actually, it's funny, it's so amazing because Ajahn Shah says the exact same thing that Leslie James said to me once because I, during a session, I really got it. Like, I really got it. <laughs> and for days, um, it was just thusness and suchness and I, I was, there was no me, there was no other. It was just this boundaryless reality that we're all in. And I actually think I really thought I was blind. And I went to Leslie James and I started sort of, you know, vomiting this bliss all over her. And she just said, don't turn it into a self. And, And 
I snapped right out of it. I mean, it was it was gone, um, and it took me uh, years to cope <laughs> with the loss of that. Um, and thank God it was Leslie, because I don't. I mean, I'm sure Tim and Mako can attest. I mean, there's almost no one else I have more love or for or faith in than her. So it I it kept me here. I um, and I've come to understand that understanding thusness beyond our preferences or understanding as Richard has written is almost just the first step and understanding that thusness is even beyond our experience and our experience that's that's the next step and I think the Zen the Zen guys compassionately um, offered that to you as a a next step that everything you experience even these transcendent insight experiences they're just a a human experience in the same way that being stressed out or petty or selfish is a human experience and our task with this life is to fully live a human life because we happen to be human chant for all our members I think he's okay right now um, then we'll do an after lecture and we'll just have general discussion um, and everyone can be unmuted at the end of the uh, after doing the after um, the after lecture chant whenever you uh, are ready okay do we do the vows we just this uh, yes, we'll also have the. Okay. It looks like um, their their Come. chat the chat box. Uh, okay. Say. Thank you for being with me, and thank you all for listening. Our intention equally extend to every being and place. With the true merit of Buddha's way, beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you very much, Brian, for for your Dharma talk and for answering some of our our questions and just for, for showing up to your life with us today. And uh, one little story I just want to say about Brian. <laughs> um, one of the other, uh, one, of the, one of the people, students at Tassajara during, during a summer, I think, uh, told Brian, gave him the advice, the sage advice of, you know, if somebody asks you to do something, just say yes. And I knew this. <laughs> because he told me that that was his practice. And so when he did come in to work under me in the kitchen, uh, I think it was the first day of uh, uh, the kitchen crew coming together. And, and I turned to Brian and, uh, and I said, would you make the soup? And he just looked at me and he gave me this look that was like surprise and 
there's a lot of emotion mixed up in that, in that <laughs> I think, but he just said yes. And um, I just kept asking him to do things. He kept saying yes. And it was very impressive to me. So that, um, that was very much uh, an, early, an early practice that has carried you to this day. And uh, hi. <laughs> uh -huh. Thank you very much, Brian. And uh, I just like to open it up to uh, other to people to ask questions or to say things to uh, to continue this conversation for a little bit. Hi, Brian. It's Toro. Hello. Oh, hey. Hi. How are you? Great. Good to see you. Um, your your audio dropped out for just a nanosecond for me when you said when you uh, mentioned that anecdote about Katagiri. Uh, <sighs> A bunch of donors are all going to die. Who uh -huh. <laughs> told you that uh, story? Diagon Luke. Diagon, I thought so. Yeah. Um, I think that wasn't at Green Gulch. I, um, this is how our, our traditions, you know, get transmitted. Mm -hmm. um, I think it happened at Minnesota Zen Center. Oh, okay. And I think it's written down somewhere, and um, it doesn't really matter. It's the you know the import of the story is the same, but. Uh, the way I heard it was a lot of very wealthy, fancy people at a very nice reception, all chatting and drinking and eating food that had been prepared for them. And he descended from upstairs and stood there and he just looked around and said, I just want you to know that you're all going to die. And it was, it was the same purpose of trying to raise money for the, for the new Zen center or the newish Zen center. And, and uh, he wasn't having any of the packaging. <laughs> That was what he wanted to say to people. So anyway, thank you. It's a great story. <laughs> whoever, yeah. Whoever it happened. <laughs> Thanks for giving me. Yeah, no, those details. I, I just I think because Diagon told me that story at Green Gold, I guess I was just picturing it happening at Green Gold. It happened there. It could <laughs> easily. Thank you for your talk. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Ajahn Chah, too, I, you know, whatever we think of, fear of death, fear of aging, fear of illness, whatever the fear, it's all just the world. Drop the world. It's just the world. And this is the way the world is. So that's, that's an Ajahn Chah quote. So, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, strongly in the tradition. Karen. Hi. I just wondered, um, do you, have you ever uh, heard of the air points meeting being like a mirror? You know how like there's no other way for it to happen if it's a mirror. They, they're they gonna, they're gonna hit. And it, you know, since it's dual mirror samadhi. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt if you... No, that was sort of just a short question. The answer is no, but thank you. I've never, no, I've never thought of it. Um, that's a beautiful... I just, I just, did everybody else go away or is it just me? No, I, I went away. I left too. Everyone just connected and reconnected. Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, that was, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. New, obviously, right? He chose the mirror for a reason. And thankfully, our beloved scholar, Charlie Picorni, has compiled a lot of great quotes about the mirror that I was going to try and use to sort of build a fortification against my own lack of understanding. But, um, yeah, I think I, I just say I, I'm really I'm just sort of soaking in the image that you just gave because of course yeah if there's a mirror there's only one arrow and right. that's that's a beautiful that's a beautiful way of looking at at self and other and and actually I just have I have to say that um, it wasn't me that I, I didn't make it <laughs> I didn't think of that myself but Cohen Franz um, I've talked with him. 
what has this to do with the power of skill? I, yeah, I really like that. Um, I have the way, or also the way I understand the mirror too is Dogen said in Genjo Koan um, when he says, uh, unlike things and their reflections in the mirror, when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. Or unlike the moon and its reflection in the water. Yes. Uh, so at Green, Green Gulch, they have this pond, and you can often, when you're walking, if you walk by it at night, I lived at Green Gulch for about eight years, so I had a lot of opportunity to see the moon reflected in the pond. And I'm sure there are bodies of water in Austin that you can see the moon reflected in. And what I love about Dogen saying that is it's really completely informed my understanding of Zen. He says, so when, and this is my understanding, if you're walking down the path and you pass a body of water and you see the moon reflected in the water, you know that that's not the moon. The way you know that it's not the moon is that you can look up and see the moon and you can say, oh, yeah, great, moon reflection, not the moon. And then Dogen says, our practice is not like that. It's the opposite. It's not like that at all. Because for us, when we illuminate this reality, ultimate reality is dark. It's gone. We can't look at ultimate reality to confirm the relative. We're so deep in the relative that we can't see the ultimate. And that's how also how I understand nirvana, um, is that nirvana is in a sense, disappearing into ultimate reality, such that ultimate reality or nirvana is then when nirvana is illuminated, this life of self and other is, is dark, it's gone. And that's, I think, supported by the Lotus Sutra also, where Buddha says, yeah, I'm, I've, I've disappeared into nirvana and I'm still helping you, but you can't see that because you're illuminating relative reality. Um, so yeah, that's been my, my experience with that quote from Kenzo Kohan that I was going to, I wrote this whole introductory talk to the retreat on the, the Jewel Mir Samani that was just going to be sort of, here's my understanding of Zen, uh, so that you know where I'm, what my biases are and where I'm coming from since I don't have, you know, the end all interpretation of Dukshan. This is just how I've come to understand Zen and how it's come to help me enough to uh, keep keep at it for two decades. Uh, hi, I'm Pat. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm so sorry we didn't get to have your workshop because I was really looking forward to oh, yeah. finally understanding this sutra. <laughs> well, like I, like I said, you can understand my understanding of it. but I, I Yeah, <laughs> right. I can't really ever really understand mm -hmm. it, can I? Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about inwardly moving like a, a tethered colt and a trapped rat. Yeah. Outwardly still while inwardly moving. The ancient sages pitied them and bestowed upon them the teachings. Right? So that's again, that's this, this, when I said, I think the, the compassion is Dungstan writing the poem at all. Um, so I'm glad I prefaced this by saying this is just my understanding. Um, because my understanding is that there's this, and I think it's supported by Reb's quote too, that the trying to get out of the world of suffering is, is just confirming and sustaining the world of suffering, right? And being upright within the world of suffering is the way to be free from the world of suffering. The image I've had, I don't know if this is helpful, but you can try to escape prison by breaching the walls or you can just never touch them. And I, that's been sort of my sense of how the Zen tradition um, comes at it. And 
I think that's it. So inwardly moving uh, is is this kind of trying to touch the walls as <laughs> a way to to conquer them, uh, but you're just you're just reinforcing them in your own reality. And to me, the Zen masters are the ones who actually they taught this sense of uprightness. Um, so outwardly still to me is yeah it's not going anywhere right it's it's running in circles in a way so it's inside it's churning inside while not going anywhere there's another um, the third and read that poem Shinshin Ming right where the line says the more in haste the more tardy they go um, and it's yeah, a tethered colt is it? Yeah, a tethered colt also can run in circles without going anywhere, and a, a trapped rat can run around the cage without getting anywhere. And to me, so again, this is just my understanding of the tradition. But what the ancestors, the teaching the ancestors bestowed upon them was that all efforts, in a sense, are running around in circles. All effort at escape is further reinforcing being tethered or being trapped and again staying here stay actually so but then turning like I said turning into the skid um, being completely caged to me is the bodhisattva and so to be honest I haven't really I didn't get too far when I realized the retreat was going to get canceled I didn't I actually sort of didn't too far in um, seeing how that fits in, except in the final line of the poem, which is practice like an idiot. So it, it, to me, that's an interesting, to me, that's a real punchline um, that I'm not sure. Yeah. So I'd have to get more into it. But so it says, that, oh, they, the ancestors bestowed the teachings so that people wouldn't keep bang, banging it up against, you know, their cages. But also, to me, the last line is kind of saying, be completely caged, or Suzuki Rishi saying, be completely fooled. Like, this is the Bodhisattva vow. So, be a tethered cold, be a trapped rat. But I guess when I say the Bodhisattva vow is not just being yourself, it's choosing to be yourself. Um, that I guess that's the difference, right? Sort of being in a cage, you can't get out of and trying to get out of it, or just being completely in a cage to help everyone else encaged which I don't think is a word but yeah Thank yeah thanks for the question Ryan I wonder if uh, if you would mind saying anything about the uh, Ajahn Chah quote where the practice of meditation whether in the four positions is is knowing what's right and wrong what, what does he mean by that yeah, know what's right and wrong in the mind. Um, of course, I don't have that much experience with him. Um, so I can tell you what I think, which is what's right and wrong in the mind is the perception of what's right and wrong in the mind. Um, and that's, so yeah, that, so when I say that what really matters to me is Jung Shan's true eternity still flows so if something seems very wrong it's not something to get rid of and some if something seems very right it's not something to hold on to um it's all experience happening in the mind and true eternity flows underneath it beyond it you know as it however you want to look at it and so to me um the fact that Ajahn Chah prefaces that by saying, are you at peace? Are you stressed out? You know, um, fully understand what feels right and wrong in the mind and, and welcome all of it. So that's sort of, um, that's my understanding. And it's very influenced by Rev Anderson too, because his, his big thing is just welcoming, you know, welcome everything into consciousness. Now I could definitely see a way which you know 
especially in the Theravadan tradition where there actually are specific practices and there are um, actually don't do this I, I was actually really blown away Ajahn Pasano who's a teacher at Abayakiri he came to Gringold's and gave a talk and he said you know we teach dependent co-arising we teach when this arises that arises and when this ceases that ceases so we take all the things that cause suffering and we just don't do them <laughs> and I was I had never heard anything like that at Zen Center which you know for for better or worse, I, I just thought that was such a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, and so there is a way that maybe Ajahn Shah is actually saying, no, there are things in the mind that give rise to suffering that you just should don't, don't go down that road, you know? So there's different ways to look at it, yeah, about knowing what's right and wrong in the mind. Um, and actually a Zen teacher who I know has taught at Austin before, Brad Warner, um, He's a friend of mine, and I, I think a great teacher. And he says a lot, you know, you know what's right and wrong. Um, sort of your mom taught you what's right and wrong. And none, that's why the precepts are so simple, too, right? None of that has changed. Um, and so there's a sense, too, that there's a, even in the relative plane, there's a wisdom within us that knows right and wrong and knows which roads are merely alluring to our maybe addictions or, or delusions um, that we kind of know aren't, aren't the most healthy roads to go down. And so um, that's also a way of, that can also be plain of knowing uh, what's right and wrong. Yeah. He says, this is called making the mind quiet. So to me, uh, so there's another line in the Jewel Mir Samadhi where Dunshan says the acquiescent mind realizes itself. And to me, that's very related to true eternity still flows. The acquiescent mind realizing itself is not something I do. It's not something I attain or grab or, or reach because that would be not acquiescent, right? That would be grabbing or 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 you know, huffing and puffing for enlightenment as a phrase I've heard. Um, yeah, how is being pained or stressed out or stirred up, how is that making the mind quiet? I think when Dungshan says true eternity still flows, I don't think Dungshan is saying that true eternity ever takes a break. And so I think when Dungshan says the acquiescent mind realizes itself, I personally don't think that ever takes a break, even when I'm agitated. I think that's the acquiescent mind realizing a state of agitation. So, but again, you're more than welcome to disagree. And so uh, somebody asked about holding the relative view and the absolute view. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I really, I like that phrase, the closest understanding of the ultimate, because that keeps it in proper perspective. And, and yes, that is practice. And, and that's, so that's the hardest part for me is this, um, it, it's a very limited understanding. I have a very limited understanding that reality is perfect and there's nothing we can do to improve it. Um, that's, I un I'm, I'm acutely and painfully aware of how unhelpful that is. Um, and so I think all these teachers and like, you know, the act of compassion of bestowing teachings of um, understanding that people need help. At the same time that you understand that everything's perfectly flowing, that is... Um, yeah, I guess it's just a limitation in my understanding, holding all that together. But it's so true. It's not just about, um, it's, you know, keeping the relative and the ultimate separate. It's about holding the ultimate with the understanding that it's just what, you know, my closest understanding to the ultimate. Um, and that that is, that's vital in our lives. And that's the reason 
these traditions exist for thousands of years and people keep saying, please do this practice, please follow these precepts. This is our closest understanding of the ultimate, you know? Yeah, I really, I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, holding the relative is um, in many ways our closest understanding of the ultimate. Yeah, so I, yeah, what I say is enlightenment, awakening, even where Dogen says all enlightenment is, is the greatest realization of delusion. Um, there's still a reason that that human capacity exists, and there's still a reason Dogen thought that was the, the most important thing to teach and that, and the most important thing for people to realize. And like the Buddha said, I'm sure there's many different translations of the Buddha's final words. But my understanding, uh, one translation I really like is strive with your whole being to achieve perfection. Um, and this is somebody who was about to enter complete nirvana. So I, for him to still say that, uh, still understood that there's a lot of suffering in this world that can be helped, even in our human terms, even there's a lot of suffering that can and should be helped and should not be ignored um, so yeah I want to thank the question asker for keeping me honest well, Brian I think um, uh, on behalf of our entire Sangha I want to thank you for coming out to um, <laughs> to speak with us and when the pandemic has subsided, I invite you to come and actually do the, the uh, toes on a yeah machine on the jewel mirror samadhi. Such a foundational work in the history of our school and in our uh, understanding. Yeah, I was going to talk about. It. I mean, you can you can support or disagree, but I think the three most important texts written by Zen ancestors are um, Harmony of Difference and Equality, Jewel Mir Samadhi, and Genzo Koan, right? Those are the three that it seems like every temple, uh, every Soto Zen temple in the world chants regularly. So uh, I really think it's a very important work. And I've loved, it, it, it's when Mako asked me last year um, if I would think of, of teaching something, the first thing that popped in my mind was Jewel Mir Samadhi because that had been, had seemed like such a, distillation of or just an expression of everything I felt I've come to understand and appreciate about this tradition so yeah I'm going to keep studying it and um, I really I will be compiling my own very unscholarly translation of it that is that's helped my practice and so I'd love to share that with others too Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you all for being a part of the Austin Sangha and keeping it coming. And thanks, Mako, for inviting me. And thanks, everyone, for listening.